If you're ever online and clickbait your way through a list of the greatest punk and or post-punk albums of all time, and that list does not include 1979's Entertainment by the Gang of Four, then I assure you that whoever put this list together is a gutless poser who doesn't know what the hell they're talking about. In fact, the list is probably some sort of filthy, virus-churning spyware that'll melt your hard drive, steal your account numbers, and generally do you no good. I'll even take it one step further. The Gang of Four's first album isn't just one of the best records of whatever genre you want to label it as. It's one of the greatest albums ever made. And their follow-up in 1981, entitled Solid Gold, is an astounding record in its own right, too. And this is not just my opinion. It's the right opinion. It's also shared by a million other people. Gang of Four's original lineup included the late Andy Gill, John King, Dave Allen, and my guest today, drummer Hugo Burnham, who, as it turns out, lives in my home state of Massachusetts as a professor at Endicott College, about 100 miles away from my house. And yet, this is the first time we've ever hung out, even if it is on a Zoom call. The Gang of Four have just released a remarkable box set called 77 through 81. includes fully remastered versions of their first two records, an additional collection of singles, and a two-disc live set from the American Indian Center from 1980. And there's a lot more where that came from, all on Matador Records. And for any fan of their music, it's a remarkably well-compiled retrospective of their best work. So today, I am absolutely thrilled to talk to Gang of Four original drummer, Professor Hugo Burnham, on Baxi's Musical Podcast. Baxi's Musical Podcast. Set this up here so it's a better position. That's perfect. And thinner. <laughs> Listen, I can't take my laptop further away from me to look thinner. <laughs> I, I, I was listening to an interview that you did another, on another podcast. I think it was uh, that record got me high. And in, the convers- right. in that conversation, I find out you're in Massachusetts, about 100 miles away from me. I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's a local call. I have to find a way to get a hold of uh, Hugo Burnham. And Save money on the call, yeah. Where are you? I'm in uh, the Springfield area. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so not, not uh, too terribly far away, but... But to find out you were in Massachusetts, I'm going, how in, in God's name did this guy find himself in, mean, of all places in the world, Massachusetts? Okay. Well, fairly straightforward. Um, in 1988, I moved to New York from London. Um, uh, at the time I was in management, I was looking after, among others, Shriekback and Julian Cope, who were both signed to Island Records. And I was just going back and forth across the Atlantic a lot. And I'd always promised myself I'd live in New York one day. So I thought, well, this is silly. I might as well go there. I was getting a bit bored with London. So sold my flat on the old Kent Road and uh, moved to New York and uh, spent two months subletting from um, one of the artists signed to Island up on 48th Street, I think it was. And then I found and, uh, and bought an apartment in Brooklyn back when Brooklyn wasn't quite as hipster as it is now. Um, This was, again, the late 88. Um, And where I was was right near the Brooklyn Museum, across the park from the park there. And I sort of six blocks that way, it was like yuppie heaven. And 
six blocks the other way it was sort of like Beirut or something <laughs> um, so uh but it was great I loved it um and then within a couple of months Ireland actually asked me to do A&R for them um so I was doing A&R for them I was there for two years um I met and married my wife there no, no longer my wife my ex uh, who was a an amazing music publicist who'd previously been a dancer um and uh we moved to Los Angeles at the end of 91 uh, because I'd gone then to work for another label, a new label led by uh, Terry Ellis, who was one of the founders of Chrysalis Records, uh-huh. sent me out there to open up and run their West Coast office for the label that was based in New York. My wife at the time went to work for Scotty Brothers, working with James Brown and various other artists. And then she went on to work with Virgin and ran her own shop for a while, worked with... Uh, Paisley Park, she was Prince's uh, label VP of publicity. I then left and went, I left that label and went to work for Quincy Jones at Warner Brothers for three years, which was great. I mean, fantastic three years. What, um, what, what was that like to work with a guy like Quincy Jones? Uh, he was fantastic. I mean, when I had my sort of first meeting with him, it was a, a friend of mine had just become the president of Quest Records, his label over at Warner Brothers, who brought me in to meet Quincy. And he was he was charming and great. We just he said, "Yeah, I just I want to expand the label. I you know just Chris sold his and Jerry and Herb sold theirs. I, you know, I want to build it up and sell it. And I need somebody to do all that noisy white shit. I don't understand." <laughs> I said, "I'm your man." <laughs> so that that was that was a good three years there. And then I went to work for EMI Publishing uh, up in, uh, in in Hollywood there. Um, and then we left. LA, uh, the end of 98, we just, we'd, we'd had a good nine years, but it was, there was something in the air. It was just the change was coming. And we, at first were going to move to Atlanta, both to work for Capricorn records where my wife had been VP of publicity and that fell through. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, <laughs> we'd sold our house. It's like, Oh, I guess we, I guess we had better leave. So we, we drove back to Massachusetts where her parents were living. Um, she grew up in New York City, but they had a place in Gloucester, Mass. And uh, we spent the winter there waiting to see what to do next. And we sort of stayed. We were doing management. Then we had a baby. And then uh, she went back to um, become a Pilates trainer instructor. And I fell into teaching at a college in Boston. Most people don't fall in love with New England because of the winters. I mean, that- no, they don't. I got I am not a fan of snow. <laughs> I, um, I'd always said that once Tessie leaves high school, I'd get out of here, which I was planning to do, but then met my current wife, and I'm still stuck here. Yeah, I know. I know. I, I've, I've, I've gone from Massachusetts to uh, – I was in Milwaukee for about 11 years because you know, there were no good colleges here in New England. And then, right. <laughs> and then I came back to Massachusetts, and I'm thinking – you know, at some point in my life, it would be nice to not live in a northern city and know what, you know, heat in March feels like or, you know, February, you know, somewhere, yeah. someplace I can sweat in January. Yeah, but at least it's not on fire here in the winter. Good point. You're teaching and running the internship program at, at Endicott College. Well, a um, little less hyperbole, if that's the way I've said it before. Um, I uh, run the internship program for the Visual and Performing Arts School at Endicott College. Each school has its own coordinator for the internship program, and I work with all the arts kids. 
which is uh, graphic design, photography, fine art, art therapy, um, interior design and architecture, and performing arts. I'm do, with my people. <laughs> do um, I I I talked to uh, um an, another guy not that long ago um who used to belong to a band called uh, the uh, Adolescents, uh, Alfie Agnew, who's who is a professor of math at Cal State. I followed him, right? And I asked him, "Do your students or other faculty have?" any idea of your background or are you just another face on campus when i started teaching in 2000 it was at the new england institute of art in boston and it was an applied art school so all the majors were but it was radio it was graphic design photography uh, the largest major when i went there was um music as in music technology uh studio technology that sort of thing so a fair number of the kids were pretty clued in. Um, I'd been brought into the school. Most of the faculty there were actually still working in the industries they um, were teaching them, which is what made it a, such a great little school before the for-profit venal monsters bought it out and took it over and destroyed it. Um, but the, uh, the, head of, the head of the career services department who actually brought me in in the first place used to manage Squeeze and, and Robin Hitchcock. We'd known each other many, many years ago um, from drinking in the same pub down in Kent, <laughs> South London. And um, so it, it was a fairly savvy bunch of people on that campus. But, you know, I kept, I sort of hid my light under a bushel initially. The beginning of every semester, or every year, you know, I always dressed properly. I wore a suit. I always wore a jacket. So, you know, so no ink showing or anything like that. You know? <laughs> um, I never wore sneakers, you know, I never wore denims or just T-shirts. You know, I, I was the adult in the room. But inevitably, kids, especially if they're in those industries, you know, they want to be in those industries, they, uh, they'll Google their teachers and, uh, yeah, most of them knew or found out. And I was very lucky. I mean, I, I think that having a history in the industry that they all wanted to be a part of gave me, and almost all the other faculty, a step up because... We were credible, not just lifelong academics, when we were teaching them about how to operate and behave and be in those industries. See, I would think that would make you maybe the coolest professor in the world to have been, you know, a part. Of, I mean, I went to a to a Jesuit college in the Midwest, and there was nothing cool about those guys. Yeah, and if you no. Googled any of them, you'd be afraid of what you'd find out. Yeah. I mean, I'm a cool professor just because I'm damn good at what I do. Right. <laughs> well, but, yeah, yeah, it, it I mean, here... I mean, we're now talking 20 years later, so we're that further removed from the time when I was so not famous. Um, but, oh, and when we did our first Gang of Four reunion of the original members in 2005, that college actually gave me a sabbatical to go on tour. Really? Which is very great. Well, it, you know, so it was a legitimate reason to take a sabbatical because I'm doing professional development. So, right. but that's um, the, But at the end of that, that tour you you went back and there was was oh, there yeah, any, went, yeah. was there any conversation about continuing with the band you know moving forward or we lasted about 18 months as the original foursome um you know without going into great detail there was some uh pressure from management who were who were when, when we started the whole affair it was just andy's manager um and he was um what's the professional expression he was a nasty little shit. Um, he was—he worked hard to get 
me and Dave sort of sidelined again as soon as possible, mm. um, which is ultimately what happened. And uh, I mean, the first year, 18 months was fantastic. I mean, the business part was not very pleasant, but when we were on stage together, when we were playing together, it was glorious. It was strong. We, we worked very, very hard to do it well, not just tooting around the country resting on our laurels, you know. Right. I mean, it was hard work. It was um, physically for me, I mean, all of us, but particularly for me, um, you know, trying to do at 50 what you used to do at 23 or 24 is not so easy. Well, and it, it, it's not like you're playing, you know, simple drum parts. I mean, you're, you're playing some pretty athletic, you know, very, you know, definitive, you know, drum lines. You know, in these uh, in these real angular songs, I mean that that does take a physical toll on you. It does. It's I'm not just keeping time. Right, and 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 to your credit, you never just did that. Which is actually, I think, between you and and Dave, that rhythm section of that band, to me, was maybe the most crucial part of it. I mean, lyrics and guitar playing are are one thing, but you know, you guys were a Gang of Four was a band that had you know, such an amazing groove to it that it separated. Well, I thought that separated you guys from nearly everybody else. Well, thank you. But I, I think one of our strengths was that how much we worked with and relied upon each other. There were no real leads. You know, we, I mean, just stylistically, it wasn't so much solos as anti-solos. We'd drop out. It was that whole dub style of leaving space and gaps. And we um, pushed each other a lot when we were creating and writing the songs, you know, reputation bragging about everything. But, you know, it, it was because we were passionate about how the songs and the music and the playing and the performance would be. So we didn't we weren't easy on each other at all about that. But I think it worked very well. Yeah. I mean, I was very lucky working with Dave. I mean, a stunning, stunning individual bass player. I mean, yeah. just really good. And, and you talked about, you know, they're not just keeping time. But what I also hated and wanted to avoid and couldn't do was be a terribly technical drummer. Vinnie <laughs> Kalaitu, I was not. Um, you know, so that that's important. I mean, when Dave first joined the band, he was the real musician. He'd been playing for years in jazz bands and cover bands. And, you know, so he could really play. And the first few months, it's like, play less. Dave, Dave, too many notes. <laughs> <laughs> But Which he embraced and made his own thing. So, um, and then I was very lucky after Dave left, you know, I spent a, a month or well, you know, a couple of weeks playing with Buster Cherry Jones from Talking Heads and Sharks um, and others. Um, that was really exciting and fun. But then uh, when we made our decision uh, to replace Dave on a more permanent basis, Sarah Lee came in, who we, we knew from Le the Leeds music scene anyway. And she's fantastic. I mean, as proven by all her subsequent work with everyone from Annie DeFranco to uh, B-52s, et cetera, et cetera. She's a terrific bass player. She was really good to play with as well. But uh, Dave and I clicked together very much in setting up that whole gang floor thing. With the, uh, with the box set coming out and, you know, reviewing the first two records and, you know, having to have the, uh, the first two CDs here, of course, and you've been listening to them a lot over the last couple of weeks. And I just, the box set uh, is is very very cool, and it's it, it's it's very clear how important these albums have become. When you hear other bands try to either emulate sounds or have drawn inspiration from these from these records, how did you decide to? I mean, you and uh, and and John and and Dave come together to say, let's review these things and and 
repackage them in a box set because it's it's a it's a beautiful looking box set. It is beautiful and it's beautifully done and it's beautifully compiled and there's a lot of really good stuff in there. Um, two main things came together to get us on this path. One was the 40th anniversary of the uh, release of entertainment. The other was um, having managed to get all our copyrights back from Warner Brothers in the US under the copyright law, um, which a lot of labels prefer not to have to deal with. Um, but they, we asked, they had to accede and give us everything back because the Warner Brothers we'd signed to in 1980 were a fantastic, unbelievable label, large, not just because of their catalog, because of the people there. And I think that's pretty much why it's why we'd signed to EMI for the rest of the world in the first place, because of the people. And, you know, every label can do it. Every label can bugger it up. So at least work with people you have some... Um, affinity with uh, and trust over what they say and do so but by the time we you know 35 years plus Warner Brothers was no longer really Warner Brothers they were Warner Brothers in name it had moved this way and that way and just there was nobody there we knew anymore and we said well you know we have a lovely history um, we if you want us to stay make us a proper offer to keep us going because otherwise we're going to go somewhere else and uh the royalty rate we had was, it was good in 1980, comparatively, for, for an, an act that hadn't already sold millions of records. Um, but by <laughs> the 2000s, it was wrong. It was low. And uh, lots of other little bits that had kicked in. We, we just weren't doing very well from that. I mean, we'd been in the black. We'd recouped decades ago. And they offered us, I said, well, we'll keep you on, you know, forever. They offered us, a, who cares, a $30,000 advance and um, an 18% royalty rate, or maybe up to 20. So we said, no, thank you. And we left and talked to a small number of labels who were very interested and decided it was pretty clear to us that Matador was the place to go. Again, largely because of the people, but they also made us a very um, good and sensible uh, offer of a significantly larger advance, which was very generous given it's just the capital and a significantly higher royalty rate, um, which I have to say the advance with the sales of the box set, which uh, the initial vinyl run of 3000 limited numbered sets sold out in a month. So that was very lucky. I wish we'd made 4,000. <laughs> I do too. Um, I do too, because I went on Matador's website and, and it said the vinyl was sold out, but the more were on their way. I'm like, oh man, I just just yeah, missed no, it. The, the CDs coming. Um, it should have been here months ago, but you know, everyone's suffering from manufacturing problems because of you know the pandemic and everything. And it's sad, but yeah, it'll be there. Um, and we renegotiated our situation with EMI for the rest of the world, and they're also putting out the box set, which is great. And then next year, of course, we um, it's the 40th anniversary of the release of Songs of the Free, which was our third album with Sarah Lee. Um, so we're preparing for that now. And um, we plan to go out on tour to, uh, I won't well, promote it, but just to help celebrate that and the box set, even though you know that was last year. Well, this year, finally, although it was supposed to be last year. Who, who will be playing guitar on that one, on that, uh, on that tour? Um, a person with very big feet. 
Yeah. Well, they got big shoes to fill. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Caught that. Talk to me about Andy Gill. I mean, obviously, this has been a rough year for a lot of people, but, you know, Andy died um, last year. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of guitar player he was, I mean, I think anyone who's listened to those records knows, you know, how brilliant he was and, and how important he was to, to the band. But as an individual, um, it's kind of an enigma for a, lot of, for a lot of fans. They may not know the kind of person he was. And he had, I, I was reading up on him and his, um, it, you know, just some of the bands that he produced uh, throughout his career. We, pretty remarkable lineup of uh, production credits for him. Tell me a, a little bit more about, about Andy. Well, he was a brother, and I don't say that lightly because back in the day when we all started this and the, the sort of six-plus years I was in the band, I mean, we really were, we loved each other. We were really fond of each other. We fought like brothers, but I think that, that those four elements pushing and pulling against each other is what makes for great art, you know, like The Who or The Kinks, or I, I know people would disagree, but I think Oasis you know they're really really good at what yeah, their, their thing you know um, right. people who fight and because you know making art sh possibly shouldn't be all lovey-dovey and easy um, i mean the police weren't exactly in love with each other full time um and then you know we always stayed in touch uh, over the years um you know leading up to the reunion i mean there were times when people were in and out of each other there was never really a period that i wasn't in touch. I mean, uh, I think particularly in the last 10 years or so, when there had been a lot of uh, discord, um, I was the only one who everyone spoke to because we had ongoing business all the time. Andrew was a very difficult man, mm -hmm. very talented, amazing guitar player, forceful personality, but very, very difficult. But we stayed in touch. We valued each other. I think sometimes in the later years, Andrew, um, in the media, um, perhaps valued the other his other three band members less than we all did, um, which caused further sort of um, fraction. But it was a miserable and sad time when he passed away. Yeah. He was not a very well person for very many years. I, you know, I don't think that's a secret. You know, he wasn't a healthy person, and uh, it was very sad not a hundred percent surprising that he became ill when when you're when you're working on you know this box set and you're working with with uh, john and you're working with dave on this obviously his absence must have been felt in this process especially when you're combining uh you know not just the uh, the the vinyl but also the book reviewing a lot of these uh your memory i don't know how nostalgic you get when it comes to that kind of thing but i would think going back and looking at old photographs old notes uh you know maybe old tapes well, I, I Okay, so yeah, I mean, John and I, John led this whole project. Um, I was definitely his lieutenant uh, doing a lot of the work. Um, you know, I'm a bit of an archivist. It's finally all those boxes I've been hauling around the world for the last 40 odd years. It's like, yes, now I can use them and do things with them because I was like, oh, my kids will love looking through this. And my daughter could give a flying fart, which is a bit, a bit unkind, but you know, it's old stuff. <laughs> um, so a lot of that, um, reaching out to a lot of friends, um, musicians, crew, friends who all helped us with memories and photographs and ephemera. It was it was terrific. Um, it went a lot faster. The fact that we that, that Andrew was not involved because Andrew was a um, not the most focused of people and a terrible procrastinator. Um, 
which I think came from a desire to control everything. So again, although we missed him and it was really important that we that, that the set honored him as much as anything else, um, which I think we did with vigor and meaning and honesty, it was a lot of work and it would have taken a lot longer had everybody been involved. Right. I can I can I can certainly understand that whole idea of maybe like you know too many chefs making the soup and and if you know yeah. if you're not all 100% focused on getting it done I mean it can cause you know a lot of headaches obviously in this box set I mean it's very clear that for the remainder of you and and, and John and Dave as well is that this is something that you are all still very passionate about and when you consider you know how you know the reputation that entertainment has had over the years. And and frankly, I think solid gold is, is an incredibly strong record also. Um, you and I, I mean, I, in many ways, I, it's a record I favor a bit more. It was much uh, more fun to make. Mm. Um, I enjoyed the process a lot more. It was less stressful. Um, the songs are great. And the fact that we did it, you know, because for many people, a second album is held because you have two or three years of gigging and writing to build yourself up to a first album. And then suddenly it's like, God, you've got to write another 12 songs. But uh, I think it's an, uh, an incredibly good record, a great record. I think it's a great record. And I think it's, it, it's, um, it's also lyrically, it's maybe underestimated. You know, I remember hearing, you know, Paralyzed for the first time. And there aren't a lot of songs where I can hear the lyrics and say, oh, shit. But Paralyzed is one of those things where you just go, that is such a powerful song about... That is absolutely one of Andrew's finest moments. That with, was him. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, it's, to me, it's, it's different than entertainment, but it is, oh, just, yeah. it is just as entertaining as entertainment. Well, without, thank you. Without it, question. It was, it was deliberately different. I mean, it would have been torture to have to, or fe feeling we would have to somehow recreate or do entertainment part two. That would have been boring. One of the things that the Gang of Four did, though, after you know, and maybe with a third album, this is true. It's it tended to sound like it was going down. I don't want to say a more commercial path, but maybe a more mainstream sounding path, uh, especially Sons after you left. Yeah. It, it, oh well, no. Okay, so Sons of the Free. I don't. I think we just wanted to be heavier and funkier in some ways. Um, when we after that. The last thing we did with Dave was the Another Day, Another Dollar EP, which, mm -hmm. to hell with which to me is the best thing we did in the studio ever. It's the closest to the sort of sound and ferocity and power of the band live. That was great. And a great um, producer, Nick Lorne. Um, God knows why we didn't stay with him for the third album. Um, but when we got to Songs of the Free, um, I think there was definitely, it was definitely part of some frustration but not selling any records, you know. And uh, I think there was definitely a feel of, okay, maybe we, we can do what we do and be difficult and interesting, but slightly towards the center, more of the center of the road. I, I won't use the word middle. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but, and, you know, I mean, I Love Man in Uniform was on the way to being rather successful as a single. But then, of course, the BBC, with both hands, pulled that opportunity away the moment that um, Margaret Thatcher decided that uh, anything that sounded, any sort of art that was to do with military and all those sort of things, when she declared war on the Malvina, on, with Argentina over the Malvinas or Falkland Islands, um, the BBC said, right, out, 
you know, we can't have songs like this when we're going to be reporting body bags coming back. So, and, you know, once again, <laughs> screwed. <laughs> One more thing that Margaret, Margaret Thatcher did for the UK. I, I am not a wealthy man because of Margaret Thatcher. Right. <laughs> um, a while back, I, I also saw a video that you've done. I, I assume it's, it wasn't that long ago because uh, the box that was in it. Um, you did a video for Amoeba Records talking about some of the records that, oh, yeah, yeah. that were you know really influential for you. And I, I have seen this band come up time and time again. And it's one of those bands where, you know, in the U.S., they are virtually unknown, but they are maybe the most influential band in, in U.K. pop music, and, and, and that would be Dr. Feelgood, a band that most Americans have no clue about. And every time, right. I, every time I hear "Down by the Jetty," I think this is standard American blues type of music. It should be uh, known here more in the states. Yeah, it's it, it's classic R and B um, done by hungry ang angry English white boys. You know, um, extraordinary band. I mean, just you just only have to go to YouTube and find things. I mean, I, I I've been saying this for years to people, um, and you ask any English band of our generation and they're oh yeah dr Fieldgood. i mean you know jake burns from stiff little fingers big fan you know the guys in killing joke i mean just anybody of our generation dr Fieldgood were it it's it's like from band to band they all cite dr Fieldgood as uh, as an influence i mean i talked to jake burns i talked to you know andy partridge from xtc they all say dr Fieldgood was not just important but crucial to their to their band and their sound and the way they and the way they played and, and maybe that whole pub rock uh scene you know was kind of a precursor to a lot of stuff but that's a band it that was, you know precursor to punk in a way because what it it started the movement away from the whole rock god thing of being so distant the equipment the playing the chords the this i mean you know look at the back of the pink floyd album i'm a gummer the picture with the van and all the equipment laid out on the road. It's like, you look at that when you're 14, you're like, Christ, I'm never going to, I'm never going to be able to get to this. <laughs> um, but then the whole pub rock thing, it's like, you know, four guys in the band, maybe five guys in the band, one amp, this, that, bang, three chords, um, which punk then sort of distilled into three small chords. <laughs> um, <laughs> But it, it did think, okay, they can do this, I can do this, really. And But, you know, there were lots of pub rock bands, but then it gets down to uh, the X Factor and the magic and unbelievable performance. And I think uh, we took a lot from them in that respect as well, just the way we were on stage. Um, I do remember John, back in the early days when REM, uh, this little band from Athens, Georgia, they used to open for us on American tours. As they were trundling around in their van, getting 50 bucks a night, maybe 100 if they were lucky, you know, sleeping on our hotel room floors because we could afford them, drinking our beer, smoking our dope. <laughs> um, I remember John saying to Michael, you have to own the stage. This is your stage. Own it. And that, you know, the whole punk rock thing, oh, no, everyone's invited on stage. Fuck off. This is my stage. And that's very important to the dynamic of being there for an audience we are performing entertaining however whatever style you choose to do that in it, you know this is my manner up here well i mean i think from a fan's perspective if you pay 
$100 or more to see a concert. I mean, you expect to see a show, not just, you know, a bunch of, you know, musicians, you know, turning their back to the crowd or, you know, or not engaging. I mean, at the, at the price point that we're at now with concerts and have been for a while. When we first came to the States, you know, the few people that did know about us, which were, you know, a, a very aggressive few people, but enough in every city we played in, in the summer of, um, 79, <laughs> right, 79. Um, I think a lot of people expect, because what they'd read, we were sort of serious, we were political, we had these songs, you know, and they were expecting what became the expression, a bit of, expect, expecting sort of dour shoegazers, and, uh, which is not what they got. There were some other um, bands I want to ask you about, and, and one, you know, one of the things that I've done during the, uh, during the pandemic is try to, you know, kind of re-educate myself on bands that I've I've heard of, but felt like I should know more about. And being home has given me a wonderful opportunity to waste a lot of time. And one of the bands that I got pretty into are is a band that you guys were very, very much associated with. And that was the Mekons, a band that, you know, there are some of the best songs ever written by this band that it even say, even calling them a band, it's hard to to really say, but. They, they, they are a social movement um, and they are so important and so solid and so good. I mean, they are still making records. They are still out there. They still tour. They have what, you know, it's it's a, it's a much, it's now a sort of more solid cast of fantastic people, um, including their drummer, Steve Goulding, who was originally with The Rumor, who took over from me when I left Gang of Four. So that family thing um, <laughs> is still there. I mean, we, we, before we were bands, we were all friends. It was a group of essentially, mostly fine art students with other people like me. I wasn't doing fine art, who socialized, who drank, who danced, who went out to late night illegal clubs, um, who, you know, went to the same pub all the time. So it was definitely, um, and, a, and a number of them went all went to the same high school in the south um, uh, near where I went to school. So it, yeah, fantastic band, great records, great people. Uh, I I travel across the U.S. Okay, you know, not all the time. I'm not that mad, but I go and see them in places because I love them dearly. Yeah, great songs. My God, they're wonderful. Uh, again, it's kind of like in in the same way that Doctor Feelgood is somewhat unknown and underappreciated here in the states. The Mekons are kind of in that same that same blanket. I mean, it, a little bit of experimentation, a little bit of research and you realize my gosh I, i've 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 wasted my life missing these great songs yeah but about mekon's fans are religious yep i mean they are fierce and loyal and uh they may not be great in numbers but they are great your your career is kind of uh like you said it's been broken up into into parts and i would imagine that the perspective you have of you know being an artist but at the same time being involved in and record companies and a and a and r kind of gives you a little bit of uh, an insight as to what has happened to that business um uh <laughs> it seems to, in in some regards it seems to have evaporated in a lot of ways i know it's still ha hanging on for dear life what what is the status of the music business right now or is that too broad of a question well it is a broad question but um it, it's not the uh, this is not your father's cadillac anymore um <laughs> it's not about people really at all anymore it's uh, and, and this was beginning to happen even back when i was still engaged in the industry um you know mavericks and and crooks and clowns who were 
the backbone of it all and were brilliant um, were being replaced by accountants and lawyers and people with MBAs. Um, and it was like, you know, really before the internet kicked in, it was people doing it by numbers uh, and doing it in a less warm way about relationships. Um, I lost my, my last job at EMI Publishing, where I was for two years. Uh, a new guy came in to run the place in LA. And uh, when we had our first sit down, he said, uh, so Hugo, how many lawyers have you had lunch with this week? And in five seconds, in my, I said, I thought to myself, okay, I'm out of here. Not by choice, but he wants me gone. And I, and I, I could have said, oh, you know, I could have lied or said, yeah, well, but I got three next week and all this and thing. Because so much deal making was about the relationship with lawyers who were representing acts. And rather than uh, a more old school approach, which is what I was hired to do, was to find young, undeveloped acts bring them in, sign them before they were worth four or 500 grand on the market, even though usually their music wasn't, and develop them. Old school artists and repertoire. Um, and that's what I've been doing for EMI Publishing with, with three or four acts that I was working with. But uh, it wasn't his style of doing things. And I was taller than him, so I had to go. <laughs> and that's and ultimately that's what did it. About height. Yeah, right. You, you mentioned earlier uh, you know, managing people like Julian Cope and, uh, and shriek back. I, I mentioned you know, talking to Andy Partridge from XTC. I'm a huge fan of XTC and I know Barry Andrews was part of shriek back. So, you know, if you, if you have all the XTC records, you must then also have a bunch of shriek back as well, even though they're two totally different, different bands, but it was one, but it was a, it was a hell of a band all by itself between you know, with, uh, with Dave and, and, uh, and, and Barry. Tell me about uh, working with those guys. Well, what had happened was when I'd stopped playing after Earth Gang 4, I played for about a year and a half with another band and trying to do sessions, but I really wasn't that sort of drummer. And my brother was working with a manager who managed Lamange and, and Shriekback and others. And uh, my brother tour managed Shriekback quite often. And uh, they were going to Europe. Um, and Jolyn was out, my brother Jolyn was out. With, he, I think he was in the state with Julian Cope because he was the principal for Julian Cope. Um, and um, he said, oh, can you tour manage them? And I said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I think I'd already done some tour management. I'd been working with Working Week, who were a sort of hipster jazz band on Virgin Records at the time. That was good. So um, I took Shriek back to Europe, and it was unbelievably good fun. We all got on. It was back with Dave on the road, and, you know. And then they, and I'd just been also been playing with ABC. I'd done all the videos and stuff and TV appearances for uh, That Was Then, But This Is Now, their mm. second album. Um, and in the same week, ABC said, well, we're leaving our manager. We're getting a manager in the US because that's where our future really is. Will you look after our management, our business in the UK, in Europe? Because uh, we think you're really smart. You're a really good drummer, but we actually think you're, <laughs> you're as good, if not better, at this sort of stuff. Sort of back-ended compliment. Um, but literally on the ferry coming back from Europe with Shriekback, um, they said, listen, we're, we're getting rid of our, our manager and we want you to manage us um, because we want to get going in America more. And, you know, so, and I balanced the two and I thought ABC will probably be more reliable and uh, solid financially and I think, <laughs> but Shriekback would be a lot more fun. Um, so I went to Shriekback and uh, I managed them for three years, uh, got them their deal 
with uh, Island Records based out of New York because Chris Blackwell loved them. Um, went on, the, I tour managed them as well, which was like being on the road with the Visigoths, basically. It was, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was good. Uh, quite a few of the old Gang of Four crew were with us. Um, and that, and it was when I was managing them, uh, and I was in partnership with my brother, Jolly. Uh, we were huge and Jolly management, Hugo and Jolly. And those were our nicknames when we were kids. Um, and Jolyon had taken over Neil Arthur from Blamange. Mm-hmm. And I just moved, to, that's why I moved to New York. I just, I wanted to be there um, when I was managing. So I'm, ran, I'm rambling. What was the original question? <laughs> Well, I just, I mean, I was, I was asking about, uh, about Shriekback as, as a band. Yeah. It, to me, it was they fantastic were, live band. I mean, just great unbelievable. Live band. Yeah. Oh, stunning. I loved being on the road with them. We went to Australia twice. Um, first time with In Excess, who were friends. Um, that was great. We did quite a lot of touring in the States with Simple Minds. Mm-hmm. They were fantastic to us as well. So, um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. So when is the um, the the reissue of uh, of Songs of the Free expected? Is that something that happens this year or uh, is it next year? No, no, no. It's next year is the 14th anniversary. We are working hard to make sure that it can come out on the early side of next year to make it easier. Should there be a gang of four to go on tour? You said acutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, you know we're we're working on that now. It won't be as obviously as grand a thing as the uh, 77 to 81 box set, but it'll be um, an album plus. There was a reissue of um, Miles Davis Blue, um, which John bought me for my birthday, actually. Gorgeous. But it had a shrink wrap sort of book with it. Mm. Um, but that's the sort of thing we're trying to aim to do. Um, but, you know, the world over, vinyl itself, just raw vinyl is, has become a rare thing. So it's not easy, but we're doing our best. And a lot of the uh, the plants that would normally have done vinyl are uh, are out of business, and so this long, long delays and a lot of stuff being released. So hopefully, when you're working on this, there those delays won't exist anymore. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Hugo, it's, it's uh, I'm thrilled to talk to you. I, 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 you know, like I said, I love those first two records, Entertainment and, and Solid so Gold. And best of luck in the future. And and again, uh, I I can't believe we're only 100 miles away from each other. I know. Um, so I'll be over in about two hours. Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> All right, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank I've, you. Uh, enjoyed talking with you. Nice talking to you, Hugo. Thank you very much. Professor Hugo Burnham from Gang of Four. The name of the box set is Gang of Four 77 through 81. It's an absolutely beautiful box set available on Matador Records, and it is just fantastic. If you enjoyed the show, please uh, feel free to share it, review it, Spread the word to all your friends. You can email me at Bax at rock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.